0: All right, everyone. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming. Exciting evening. Uh, my name is Michael Cioni. And you guys are at uh, Light Iron, which is uh, a, a post house that actually started in Los Angeles. And we moved to New York uh, last year. So we've been open about a year and a half, moved here about a year and a half ago. And what's been really great is as I moved to LA and expanded my, I'm sorry, as I moved from LA and expanded the Light Iron Group to here. Chris Healer and the Molecule Group expanded to L.A. from New York. So we became friends sort of in this mm-hmm. passing each other in the sky kind of thing. So it's pretty serendipitous for us to kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, work together on things like this. So it's pretty exciting. Um, Light Irons is a DI facility. So we obviously have a huge vested interest in the success of the uh, VFX side of things because we handle all the dailies and the visual effects polls And so on some of the projects that we've done you know, a lot of the uh, features we do where we have more than a 1,000 shots, one to 2,000 shots, of course you guys know, that has a lot of trouble, especially with what I call color symmetry, because I find that when you have multiple vendors and you have multiple cameras, and people are using different types of things, some people like Cineon, some people like Lin, some people are working with CDL, some people are not, and being able to keep color symmetry gets pretty nasty, especially when... If you're anything uh, like me, you see these AVID reference files coming out, and it's not a reference file whatsoever. So you have to figure out what is our color symmetry. So um, I'm really excited for uh, events like this because um, Chris is actually really, really smart. For those of you who don't know him, this guy's a very, very sharp guy. (laughs) And so that type of understanding and mastery of his side of the craft is something I really look forward to learning more about and I really look up to. But in terms of the finishing side, uh, that's where I love to be uh, sort of like a bookend to VFX, where we deliver the polls the way that you prefer to work that maintain a DP's uh, uh, color control, and then we receive it back from you so that we can give the control back to the DP. So sort of like we run laps, and I feel that we all have to share the responsibility of handing off and good communication. And that doesn't always happen, which is kind of sad. But I would say, why it doesn't always happen is because it's complex. We're not in a world (laughs) that isn't simple anymore. And I was walking today on the street getting some lunch, and I realized, I was having this great conversation with one of my staff, and I said, do you realize that when we used to use videotape, that videotape was literally workflow inside of a specific boundary. Think about that, right? If you think of videotape, mm-hmm. it literally was the workflow. It decided the frame rate, it decided the gamma, it decided the raster and the aspect ratio, and all those things were actually contained in this little plastic package. And as long as you had the blue deck with the blue tapes and the green deck with the green tapes, as long as you line those things up, that was as complicated as it got for a lot of people. And we're just we've lined up this videotape with this VTR, mm-hmm. and we've got this stuff working. It's all predetermined. But we don't have that anymore because we don't have any containers. We have volumes. We have drives that are totally unique. There's nothing that you can use. There's no VTR. There's no color coding. There's no manufacturer that has a trusted name anymore. Like All that stuff is kind of eliminated. And so it's up to us to make sure that we can maintain that color symmetry and that workflow. And I think that uh, workflow is absolutely the king of successful businesses. And the enemy of unsuccessful businesses. And so workflow is yeah. valuable. And that's exactly what Chris is going to be talking about tonight. So for um, for Chris, my brief introduction of him, um, founder and CEO of The Molecule. So I'm really excited uh, to have that here. From Colorado, which shows that he's a very blue collar, comes from a blue collar <laughs> group of people, which means you can get him to work and he'll never say no because Coloradans <laughs> will work without stopping. Um, Uh, He moved to New York uh, after uh, getting on his Sundance feature. He has quite a bit of visual effects skills, opening uh, Molecule using his skill set back in 2005. And um, he does not only the CEO side of things, but he's also doing software development and building their render nodes and their IT infrastructure. So he's very, very multifaceted, which I think is specifically uh, helpful in terms of lectures like this, which are going to be very, very deep. and I would say that uh, some of his credits include uh, Rescue Me, Damages, 30 Rock, Smash, Blue Bloods, uh, and Beasts of Southern Wild. So without further ado, welcome Chris Healer. Thank you, sir. All right.
1: Thank you. I totally agree. I think that was, that was a great introduction that we have moved into a new era where once upon a time it was all of the standards were contained on a tape. And now we're kind of free-floating out in space, especially... Uh, with visual effects where in the past, perhaps, you would capture material off a tape. It was in the format that was determined there, and we would work with it and return it back, hopefully completing the cycle of whatever transformations we apply are inverted and everything flows. Now, there are certain transformations that can't be inverted and certain bits of confusion because we don't always get the full puzzle or all the pieces to the puzzle once we start working. So, in order to kind of unravel this mystery, we're going to focus on four main sections of what it takes to basically, uh, let me get my pointer, basically to, to linearize material, view it while we're working on it, and save it out to disk when we're done. It's, those are the three parts. We want to get into linear space, do something with it, might be visual effects, might be color correction, might be whatever. In my case, we want to work in visual effects. We want to see it while we're doing it, and we want to give it to someone else when we're done. Pretty simple. Ha. So just to expound on our on our four topics, uh, so linearization, how the data is recorded is not how we want to view it or deal with it. Legalization, this is like kind of a phantasm in the whole setup that is so frustrating it seems so simple i've only put two cards in here that really explain what it is but we're going to see how it permeates our whole flow in mysterious ways luts everybody i hope how many do you guys know what a lut is can you like maybe draw a picture of a curve that's a lut or an equation that's a lut? we're going to look into the types of luts we're going to look into how encompassing that term is, and how many lets it takes to go into our linear space and back out. And storage, storage. This is a really touchy topic for me, and actually, this was the hardest part was writing about storage because, uh, strangely enough, as I say, this creates many of the obstacles we have to overcome. So, what I mean by that is. As a software developer, it's helpful to start in an ideal world and work backwards and then sometimes to start in the world we're in and work forwards and hopefully you meet somewhere in the middle and then you have a functioning ecosystem. But something like visual effects, for instance, or the video industry has spanned, what do we want to say, 30, 40, 50 years at this point in terms of in its modern form, which is something that's less filmy and more video-y, right? So storage, this is a a key thing that these other three elements end up curving their whole existence for being around storage. So starting with the first one, or starting with foundation. You guys, I hope find this interesting because I think it's very interesting. Uh, It might be a little off topic, but I think we're gonna see how it fits back in. So what is color? Color is light coming from something, bouncing off something else, coming to our eyes. They exist as photons, which are waves and particles. So we can have lots of them hitting something, and they exist in different frequencies. Or we can have very few of them of different frequencies at the same time. That's like a PhD in one slide here. So, How do we see it? So the photons exist in the world, but they enter our eyes, and we interpret them. So up here we have, we are the molecules, so I'm a total nerd about showing the, you know, the uh, elements and the periodic table, and this is just a simple reminder that all elements in the universe emit some spectral frequency, so whatever these things are made of, they're putting out the colors that we see. They come into our eyes, we interpret that, but we tend to think of it this way, in kind of a hue-saturation-luminance thing which really has nothing to do with what's actually going on in the physical world. It's just our interpretation of it, right? So we have the physical model, we have the mental model here, but cameras are doing a totally different thing. Cameras are actually taking photons that come in through a lens, hitting a CCD, and it's selecting frequencies of light that it cares about. And it does the best it can, but it's imperfect. So just right here we're seeing well, this particular camera, which I believe is the Alexa camera, uh, it has a lower sensitivity to blue for whatever reason. The specific materials they use to build that CMOS, it's not as sensitive to blue as it is to red. And red, for instance, it has this non-linear pickup on it. There's just a little notch in there where it's just not as good at, at this 640 millimeter frequ- nanometer frequency as it is at 650. And it doesn't matter what camera, they all have these idiosyncrasies. Nothing is perfect. And then after the camera records it, we want to see it back, right? So the monitor is supposed to take digital information and turn it back into real light, and we're supposed to see it. The monitor itself has the same inverse idiosyncrasies as the camera, where it's not as good at reproducing certain colors as other colors, or what we think of as a linear curve from black to white, actually it fails at certain stages within that. So we want to end up correcting for that. So, you can see what I'm setting up is, from the real world to our eye, through a digital pathway, there's a lot of steps. I'm gonna just, real quick, just say them, just to show that there's unexpected things in there. It's emitted in the real world, it passes through a lens, it's captured by the camera, it's stored on a disc, it's read back into a playback system. So, the reason I'm pointing this out is that, Every single one of these steps is a potential place where color is changing. Color is being transformed by whatever failures or inadequacies or idiosyncrasies exist at each one of these stages. So once it's read from disk, the playback system, you know, Final Cut or Avid, it's going to do something to color. The operating system, it might have some kind of color correction, or the Black Magic card for instance, or whatever card you're using to do playback. The monitor, Someone may be screwed with the dials. All of a sudden, a different color. This one, I think, is really interesting and often forgotten is that the color of the lights in the room change the color that enters your eye. So simple, and a lot of us work in the dark just to avoid this, but some people don't. Some people have a yellow lamp next to their desk, or a blue lamp, or a fluorescent lamp, or a mood rock. Okay, all of a sudden, what you're seeing is not the same color as what was originally represented in the real world when it was emitted as a photon. So made very simply, we have three completely different color models, and we're trying to get all three of them to meet somewhere in the middle, which is so complicated. But we do our best. So we're going to explain kind of where we are at you know, in terms of modern technology right now. So going back to our four topics, the first one is Linearization. This is something that's, that has to exist. This is something that I personally have fought for a long time because I'm always thinking why isn't it linearized before we get it. And as I looked into it and as I tried to write this and phrase it and rephrase it, I started to really realize why. And I think this is, this is hopefully like an aha moment for everyone. Uh, there's this really great analogy. If I had 16 candles Or 32 candles or whatever number you want and we were sitting in the dark if I lit the first one okay here's some amount of light and I light the second one it's probably it's gonna be brighter and I keep lighting candles right logically you know that when you get to the 15th candle it's not as bright as the 16th candle right but how much brighter how much did that 15th and 16th candle contribute to the total light in the room and it turns out that it's only four times brighter on the sixteenth candle. So if you look at this, the number of candles and our perception of the brightness are not linear related, they're exponentially related. It's a logarithmic relationship there. So when I add eight candles to the previous eight, it adds to my eye, to my perception of it, the way I'm thinking of it, it adds about the same as much light as going from two candles to four candles. So that's pretty interesting. And it actually becomes kind of intuitive when you think about it. It's like, yeah, you're right, you know, when I was at 15 candles and I added the 16th, the room didn't really get that much brighter, especially compared to when I had one candle and I added a second. So we know there's something going on there. This is the relationship. And we call that, and you've heard it before, log to Lynn. Uh it basically means that we're thinking in counting terms the 15th candle the 16th candle whatever but our, our brain in terms of interpreting the brightness is actually working in these kind of exponential values so do you guys are you guys math nerds do you enjoy the math explanation sense. or made sense okay so this is a really interesting drawing because this really illuminates haha a light joke that our eye sees step 1 step 2 step 3 step 4 but the amount of light it just keeps going and going and going this curve actually never levels out it just gets shallower and shallower and shallower where this distance becomes you know more and more and more but we don't care about the number of candles we only care about this thing is this much brighter and this much brighter but i'm not going to use any you know scientific terms to say how much this is you just feel it, you interpret it, that it's about the same amount more, and about the same amount more. And it's kind of subjective, but kind of scientific at the same time. And we can all, if we got together as a big group, we would kind of agree that this is this much more brighter than this thing. Oh, this last line. We want to linearize the image, which is done by applying a gamma curve or LUT of the right shape. And I'm kind of being purposely vague here, because this is the part that trips up everybody. What is the right shape? We want to know what the right shape is. We want to know how to get to that shape, what system of transformations gets us there, and whether or not we can invert it, because whatever we started with, we probably want to get back to. So the right shape is coming from what camera we used, how it was scanned, or perhaps what we're trying to display it on. Without skipping too far ahead, uh, what we're, when you view an image on the internet, you don't expect to need to apply color correction to get it onto your monitor properly, right? So a lot of times, JPEGs, for instance, or GIF files on the internet, they're already encoded as sRGB, which coincidentally is what your monitor uses as encoding. So it turns out that there's a one-to-one relationship there, and you open the image, and it looks right. The actual data on, in the file is not linear. It's not representing that even slope that we're thinking it is because it has to adapt itself to your monitor. So, Depending on the software this is sometimes called color space. We're going to explain later, we being I, I'm going to explain later why I really don't like the word color space. I think it's often misused. But for whatever reason it's kind of entered into the vernacular of, of how we talk about these things. Okay, legal and full range. This is the kind of phantasm that's always lurking around, and you're going to see what I mean by that, and you're probably going to see when we get into the nuke section later how confusing this particular thing is. So it's pretty simple. You have the maximum bandwidth of whatever your signal is from the darkest black, which is zero, to the brightest white, which we can call one, or we can call... If we're in integer space, 255 or 1023 it's all powers of two because it's based on bit depth, which we're also going to get into. If you're going from full range to legal, obviously you're scaling down. So we're lifting our black to something above zero. We're darkening our white to something below. And that's obviously invertible. So why would they do something as confusing as this? Why would you put something on a tape or put something in a file where black isn't actually black and white isn't actually white. Well, as we are producing video, we, you know, part of it is doing it correctly, but part of it is also preserving options for later. So, uh, what's happened was, years ago, they established the broadcast standard, which says you have to use legal values, because they're actually using this headspace space and, and, and foot, foot room, uh to embed additional information, black bursts or other synchronization symbols. Um, it was kind of a, a, like, a, like a foresight that they applied that, that was part of the standardization process. Now, basically, modern video s- systems can exploit the legal to full range to sneak a little bit of extra uh, high dynamic range in there. So where before, it would crop here at one, because that's the maximum bandwidth of what that device can record. Now all of a sudden we catch this whole long tail, which might be the little glints off of a car or someone's diamonds or little, you know, specular hits that are that are so bright that they can't, you know, you, they would never be properly exposed no matter what. But at least we get some amount of that rather than clipping it all out to white. So that's one strategy. There's there's a, a few strategies for using broadcast versus well legal versus extended. I mean, say, for instance, you're shooting something that's supposed to go directly on the air and you don't have time to change the scaling, you would probably shoot legal in that case. We don't know what the footage is until we either bring it up on a scope or open it in Nuke or something else and start to figure out where is, where is black at, where is white at? How, how is this? We, we don't know. You can't, you can't like... Maybe someone was nice enough to write it into the file name or make a note or the DIT wrote it down somewhere, or it was in a spec sheet, but more often than not, they're like, here's the footage, have fun. And that's it. You don't get any more information. So there's a little bit of exploration there to learn whether or not footage is in legal or full range. LUTs. There's a whole lot of math with LUTs, but they're actually pretty simple. Every single piece of this is simple. Just when you get a lot of them together, it starts to get complicated. So a LUT. I think intuitively everyone knows, okay, you open up Photoshop and you want to apply a curve to something and you know, you bend it down a little and it gets darker and you stretch it here and it gets brighter and you just kind of do it intuitively, but, but specifically, mathematically, what's happening is values come in the bottom and go out the side. So a direct straight line means whatever came in same thing goes out. But As you start to bend it you see, for instance, this this red value here, which was just above midway, is now all of a sudden being mapped way up to almost the maximum value that's held within this amount of bandwidth. So just thinking about that, it's like, like you can play with it, it's very interactive, but a lot of people don't actually make the realization that it's in the bottom, out the side, and if you wanted to invert it, you'd go in the side and out the bottom. right? You know, the video industry, if you want to call it that, or the video science, you know, powers that be, did not invent LUTs. They've existed for a very long time. It's just a transformation. And unfortunately, video is a little more complicated than, you know, other things that may be just, uh, you know, a single dimension. Like video, at the most primitive level, has at least three dimensions. It has red, green, and blue within a digital space. Um, this here is kind of something worth mentioning in that we commonly use the word LUT, which means lookup table, which means, okay, well, there's got to be a table in there somewhere. But that's kind of a colloquialism as well in that, uh, especially now we use an equation just as often as we use an actual lookup table. So I can call something a LUT and write down the equation for it. I don't have to give you a whole chart of every single value and you interpolate in between. And we're going to find that that this concept of using an equation is how a lot of the ma- camera manufacturers create their linearization systems. Uh, and some of them actually do use sampled curves like this. So there's really only two kinds of flats, right? 1D and 3D. This is if you're reading a software manual, if you're opening up Nuke, if you're opening up Flame, whatever it is, there's only two kinds. There's going to be little variations and renamings of it, but this is all that's going on, and this is all that can actually go on. Uh, a luminance curve, which we're going to see later, is a special case of a 1D curve, 1D LUT, where all of the curves match each other, and Every single operation that you do ever with color in any software of any kind, doesn't matter what, if it's Photoshop or, you know, After Effects or whatever, every operation fits within either a 1D LUT or a 3D LUT. So just to expound a little farther, a luminance curve is one curve that applies to all three channels. So we call it a luminance curve, not 1D, not 3D, luminance curve, but one curve applies to three channels. And we can pick up things like, a contrast curve, or no transformation, or something that flattens or kind of reduces contrast. It's very useful and very simple, very easy to write down, very easy to transmit. We have a 1D LUT. This is confusing because a 1D LUT has as many channels as your image has. So a 1D LUT probably has three different curves inside of it. But a luminance curve, all you can do is change the brightness from from one state to another. A 1D LUT actually allows you to change the, the temperature of it, allows you to change how it's biased towards green or blue, lets you maybe uh, apply contrast to blue and yet apply a contrast curve to blue and yet kind of flatten out the red a little bit. So we're starting to see you have a little more power, but with that power comes a little more complexity in that now we have to keep track of three curves instead of one curve. A 3D LUT is awesome. A three D LUT, if if we use three D LUTs for everything, we could do exactly what the other two systems do all day long, every day. The big problem with three D LUTs is that they're so complicated to transmit. There's so many this is such a simplified version. Imagine this here and I had, you know, thirty or forty other colors in between each one, right? And then that's running in two dimensions and in yet a third dimension. So there's potentially hundreds or thousands of points inside of this region. And that's what we're seeing over here. So they're very hard to draw, very hard to transmit. They're not that hard to transmit, but you're relying on softwares to be compatible with each other and for them to read the data that's inside of your LUT file the same way and to interpret and to interpolate and to extrapolate those values the same way. So. We use 3D LUTs a lot, it's it's become kind of a standard, but it comes also with that same price of complexity and sometimes incompatibility, and almost definitely irreversibility. So just to bring it back down to earth, away from complexity, here's the image that the camera saw. We want to linearize it, and this is what we get. So it's a 1D, or I'm sorry, it's just a luminance curve, which are a special case of a 1D LUT. Okay, now we're back to my my buddy storage here. So, like I said before, coming from the ideal world is an interesting place because you learn, you know, in a way, like, wherever we're at in technology is always drifting towards something more ideal, hopefully, right? Disk space would be infinite. Well, if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh man, I've got 100 gigabytes on my system. That's like, it's basically infinite, right? But no, now it's 100 terabytes or 100 petabytes or whatever. So it's becoming more infinite, but it's still limited. We still have to think about it. We can't just use it and never think about, you know, have to you have to manage your disk space. And that's, especially for us in visual effects, you know, we're managing 10, 15, 20 projects at the same time. It's something you have to think about. Bit depth would not have limits. Well, floating point is pretty limited in the cosmic sense, but almost unlimited in the sense of how much color information is there. If we had a camera that actually shot in the floating point space, you can do all kinds of things. I mean you could underexpose it by ten stops and bring it back in post with no problem because it's there's just that much information there. And then this, this is like kind of my pipe dream, is that we have softwares talking to each other all over the place and we're not rendering out files anymore and reopening them and giving them to someone else to screw up and then open back up and da-da-da-da. So it's, this is kind of my pipe dream, is a, is, a, is a more connected world where one guy can open up his comp and the editor is seeing his changes right there, and this is far into the future, but we're even drifting towards this, right? Eventually. So because disk space is limited, we have to think about the sizes of our files. We want compression because we want small files, but we don't want to lose data. So we have to choose a bit depth, which is basically an irreversible thing, right? Once we say, we rendered everything to 8-bit, well, it's not like you can render it back in some other way and end up with 16-bit or float. I mean, you can, but you don't actually gain the color information that you lost. So it's, it's a destructive process. And that decision is a big decision. And it might have already been made for you by the camera you're using or whatever else. And like this, as the projects grow in complexity, I mean, if we think of like, I don't know, the life of Pi, for instance. How many millions and millions of intermediate stages, of intermediate shots, of this, that, and the other thing were transmitted around? It's like, it's just a fact of life. But, right, so... Commonly, material is stored in 8-bit or 10-bit. We probably, you guys are pretty used to hearing those things. We're going to actually explore what it means, 8-bit and 10-bit, because I I think uh, uh, anyone who hasn't typed code or hasn't really looked at what those those bit ranges means may not. Hopefully, that's an aha moment. And this is kind of my personal opinion here: is that 10-bit log data on well-exposed footage is sufficient for almost all purposes. In fact, exceeds a lot of, you know, exceeds a lot of the need. 8-bit does fine in many cases. Now, this is me saying we have to deal with the stuff. We have to figure out how to make it work. On the flip side, you know, you, you read a lot of marketing material. People are like, oh, floating point is the best. We're going to use this. We're going to. It's like, it's this is a this is a tricky topic. This is why, like I was saying before, there's like an emotional attachment to like, how much do you have to deal with? How much do you want? How much do you gain by having to upgrade your system or not upgrade it? What can you fit into your existing system? This is something in visual effects we constantly have to deal with, right? So this is kind of my platform is that you know, why are we dealing with color space? Why not, again, why don't we just get footage that's already linear, already in floating point, or something like that? So, linear meaning we don't have to deal with color space transformations. And floating point meaning it's already got way more color information than we ever even knew what to do with. So theoretically you have this file, and you're done. And you don't have to think about all this stuff. But the more I look at it, I'm like, you know, we don't gain anything. Because going back to the candle analogy, I don't necessarily care About the 14 and a half candle versus the 15th candle, right? And then I don't even have that amount of resolution between the first and second candle that didn't even exist. So, like, why am I creating a container that can hold the first candle and the 1.1th candle and the 1.2nd candle and the one and a half candle? Why do I need a container that can hold all that when the data isn't even interesting or there to begin with? By applying a logarithmic image to the uh, curve to the image, we're dedicating color information to the parts we care about. So we have to think about it for a second. What do we care about? We care about this step to this step to this step. We don't care about all these little micro increments that, that we don't get in the darks, we do get in the lights, but we end up basically lugging around all this extra stuff that it's just not that useful in a lot of cases. OK, so coming back to my kind of thesis statement here. This workflow, it seems simple. And I'm going to present it from a Nuke standpoint. How many of you guys are Nuke guys or, or any Flame or Houdini or anything else? OK. It kind of applies everywhere, but I, I'm focusing on Nuke because that's what we deal with mostly. Um, but this, even you know, colorists are thinking in these terms and working in these terms. They might be faster at it, and they certainly have a lot more practice at it uh, because you know in compositing you don't necessarily hopefully you don't spend a whole lot of time linearizing hopefully you spend most of your time compositing and putting the shot together and working about other you know working out other aspects of it. So I want to break down this workflow for a second into the pieces which like I said, linearize display and storage so once we get into linear, we can do anything we want, right? We can add CG material to it. We can add other footage that's been linearized. If we have stock footage from somewhere, we have still photos, we have HDRI images, whatever. Linear is our our happy meeting place that that we're trying to figure out how to get to. And there's basically these four steps, right? Read the footages raw. The only reason I put this step in is that a lot of software's try to automatically read what's in there. They try to like use the metadata, which sometimes is right. But the second it's wrong, you got to know where you're at. you got to know, you got to understand what to do, right? You may or may not have to apply scaling. It's probably not written in the file, it's probably not in the metadata, but I'm just trying to kind of attune everyone to the fact that the footage may be illegal or extended, and you don't know. So as you're trying to figure out how to get it into linear space, you have to consider that it might be, this might be a step required, right? CDL. CDL has popped up over the last few years. I don't know, maybe five years ago it started happening and then now it's really been embraced. Um, usually you have like a DIT on set who's generating these CDLs. And this is kind of an interesting, well, we'll, we'll get to it in a second. Uh, it's an interesting development in that it allows a little bit more power on set and allows people to feel more comfortable, but it just adds yet one more thing that we have to kind of keep track of and hopefully shepherd through this whole process, or someone shepherds it to us and then we use it correctly and then pass things through. And then our linearizer, right, which is our camera LUT, which basically takes us from log to lin. So theoretically, if these steps are applied properly, you're in linear space afterwards. And now the display branch. So we're gonna expound on each one of these pieces, but the point here is that getting to linear space is still not the end. Because if we go all the way back to the beginning and remember, once it's in the computer, it's still got a bunch of steps to go to get to your eye. Right? There's a m- whole bunch of transformations there. So we're gonna explain this, but you know the the key thing here, I suppose, is the display LUT that says whatever you're doing inside the computer. Needs to go at least through a display LUT to get to your at Just, I'm sure you guys know this. I hope you know this. That, you know, generally computer monitors are sRGB, which was the, you know, standard kind of adopted by the world for the internet and other computer-based stuff because it was in question until it was standardized. I should say standardized. Um, and Rec 709 is the broadcast standard, which basically we'll see later. Basically, these two curves are very similar, but they are distinctly different and not interchangeable. But they accomplish the same thing. It has to do with the, the, the physical bias of the device, you know, using a tube versus an LCD or using a uh, CRT versus, you know. Um, okay, the filmmakers or DI facility may have a look. So, I don't know, have you guys worked with looklets before? It happens a lot where they're like, Yeah, but on set it looked so cool and desaturated and we just pulled out the red of that girl's lips and it was amazing. And this footage doesn't look like that. It's like, okay, well you were applying a look. You want that to be the look of your show for whatever reason. It's a creative choice. Okay, so going back one step, this is our look LUT. It's probably something creative. It may not be. I mean, sometimes if you work with Technicolor, for instance, they'll give you a LUT. And the purpose of the LUT is to apply some amount of look to it. But it's also to limit the gamut so that you can't possibly produce, theoretically, produce footage that they can't reproduce on film. So that's kind of an interesting little thing that by, by shaving off areas of the gamut, they're, they're basically disallowing you from creating something that they themselves can't recreate in a film app. The look is usually a 3D LUT because it's complicated and custom and, um, It's just a very common thing, so I'm pointing these out in particular because we're gonna see later that a lot of times a look LUT is irreversible, and reversibility is very important to our flow in terms of working the way the client expects, working the way the artist expects, but also being able to get back out to the proper space, so we need reversibility to get to that place. And just pointing this out, the look LUT should happen before the display LUT. I, th- I think you're starting to see that things have to happen in the exact right order or else it's a total mess. And when I pull it up in Nuke, you'll see that if you just invert two nodes, all of a sudden it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. And this is my other thing, assuming the display LUT is not concatenated, right? So if you call Technicolor and you say, hey, okay, can you give us the LUT for this show? And they're like, well, what are you viewing it on? Rec. 709 or sRGB or what? They're asking you right there, they're saying, we're gonna concatenate our LUT with your display LUT. So what they're trying to say is, we're gonna give you one LUT that accomplishes both of these things. So that's kind of convenient, hopefully, if you're working in an editing system, for instance, and it's always Rec 709, and there's only one spot to put the LUT, but it's not convenient in visual effects because I might be working through the look LUT and viewing it on my monitor, but then I wanna pull it up on my broadcast monitor. And I want to see how it looks there. Or our projector has some other display LUT of some kind. I want that flexibility. So that's that's a little moment that says, hmm, you're concatenating. Now, why why are we worried about concatenation? We're just adding curves together, right? But you have this new curve. And it has no history, no no context. You don't know. Well, is that just a curve from some other camera that I don't know? Or is that a basic log curve with a contrast curve that that they just like, and they just added them together. Like, you don't know. There's no way to deconstruct it. You're just getting this thing, and there's there's not even a mathematical or scientific way to to deconstruct it into pieces. So, you know, you have to be very alert to when they're giving you something irreversible like that because it could cause problems later. And we're back to my buddy Storage here. So now we've gone forward, 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 forward. It's coming out of screen. These are all forward transforms. So we can do whatever we want forward because we don't have to go back. But for storage, if they give us log footage, for instance Cineon footage, the expectation is probably that we're giving them Cineon footage back. And in order for me to get from one space back to the same space, I'm going forward, 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 backward, 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 to get there. So if I put this irreversible cube LUT here, or I'm sorry, here, I need the inverse cube lut here in order to get back to where I started. Now, you can see this in a few different ways. You can see it as it's a courtesy to give it back to them in the same format, right? Or it's a professional obligation to give it back to them in the same format. Or on a multi-vendor show, we don't want to be the guys that are in sRGB and these other guys are in Cineon and the poor colorist or poor you know assistant editor or whatever is sitting around trying to figure out this, this hodgepodge of a mess. Like, We've conformed it into one place. They gave it to us either the way they want it or the way we asked for it. Presumably, they know what to do with it because they gave it to us. So, we're going to give it back to them in the same way. <coughs> so, I think of this as unwrapping. I like the word unwrap simply because we're, we're crawling into this thing and then we've got to climb back out of these layers. And there's, you know, this is yet another place that's pretty easy to make a mistake. Uh, and it's set in text here. Starting from linear space, working backwards, we need an inverse camera LUT, inverse CDL, and invert scaling. So we're going here, scaling, so scaling was first, now scaling is last. And the CDL was second, now it's second to last, and the camera LUT, and so on. And not only is it, you know, the order is reversed, also the direction's inverse. So inverse camera LUT is the opposite of a, of the forward camera LUT. So, Again, just pointing out, if you can follow this track, things are pretty smooth. But if you apply this camera LUT twice without inverting it, all of a sudden you've got a mess out here and you've got something to figure out. You've got some debugging and detective work to do. So what does it mean for a LUT to be inverted? Like I said before, values come in the bottom and out the side. If they come in the side and out the bottom, then we're inverting it. Well, that turns out to be the exact same thing as mirroring it over a diagonal line. So if you have a curve, or an equation, or a sample curve, or you're in Nuke, and you've drawn a custom curve for yourself, you know how to invert it, because you're just flipping it over a 45 degree line. And different softwares, some call it forward, some call it backwards, some call it inverse or reverse, or, but you kind of get the idea. Are all LUTs reversible? No. Many are. The functional ones are that do, like, for instance, uh, camera LUTs where it's basically just a curve that never crosses itself. 3D LUTs have so much math- potential mathematical complexity in terms of is it rotating color? Is it eliminating saturation? Is it just doing contrast or scaling or something else? It's like some 3D LUTs are invertible but the vast majority of them are not, and most softwares don't even try uh, Generally, 1D LUTs are invertible, because why would you ever do this curve? I mean, what, what would this curve do, right? This would, this would completely solarize your footage and make the shadows be as bright as midday, and take the highlights and drop them down into the, the depths of darkness, and then we preserve the brightness. It's like, this doesn't make any sense, but you could do it. But it's just looking at the curve, we know it's not invertible, because whatever comes in this, in the bottom and out the side, if I put it back in the side, this value, this value, and this value are all identical. And, and we don't know how to reverse that. There, you basically have lost information at that point. So coming back. Now we see we want to work on the footage, so we want to see it. We want to read it right, and we want to get to linear space in between. And we want to be able to deliver it to our client. right? that would be a happy place to work. Okay. So, every camera is different. And I don't know how many types of footage you guys have worked with. Like, you know, there's the common ones, Arri, Red, Sony. There's other ones like, you know, Phantoms, or, I don't know, Viper cameras, or a 5D, or a GoPro, or a Black Magic. Each one of them has their own special way of capturing the information. Each one of them has a different sensitivity to it. And the engineers who build these things, basically, they sit down and figure out, okay, what are the idiosyncrasies of this camera? How can we create a curve that's gonna best represent uh, a linear representation of what we've sampled from the real world? So some are, some are stingier than others about giving you their quote-unquote special sauce, the thing that makes their camera really good. You know, Probably if you, if you talk to Red, they're like, well, we won't give you the curve, but we'll give you the software to convert it. That might be helpful. Whereas ARI, on the other hand, is like, here you go, drawn out. What format would you like? How many sample points? Would you want the inverse to? Do you want it concatenated with anything else? So this is a this is a thing. And this luminance curve that gets from their kind of camera's space into linear space is called a camera LUT. So just keep taking a mental image of this. Versus a few other cameras, and this one doesn't even, doesn't even sample in RGB space, right? So we can see, and this one's film. So it's kind of, it's, they're not even necessarily even close to each other, right? And some of them have to compensate a lot. This one, for instance, has to like really increase the blue here, but then eliminate the blues here. And this is done in, in software processing and, and other methods. So one other thing to point out, because we're in the cameras and recording sections. So so we're focusing on how do we go to the real world, capture material, and then come back with something that's useful? And what happened while we were there doing that. Uh, You know, the DP probably knows how to do this, but while you're on set, you know it's crazy. And and his focus is probably on on story and and the script and making sure, you know, on the political level everybody's happy. Uh, But one way that that's done is producers and directors—they're going to feel more comfortable if they sit down at the viewer screen and they're like, "Oh, this looks great, and her flesh tone looks awesome, and I love the color of that dress, and it's this is you know taking place at sunrise, and it just feels like sunrise." You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to shoot a sunrise. It can be really hard, and you're constantly readjusting because the sun moves so fast, and it's overexposed and underexposed and whatever. Uh, it, producers and directors obviously are going to be nervous about that. So this is a thing that I was mentioning before, that CDLs have become very popular uh, for the purposes of kind of getting everyone on the same page in terms of whatever the camera is recording, we know that we can get to this place somehow in post-production. right? Back in the day you would shoot on film and you ask the DP or the camera operator, like, did we get it? And they're like, yep, we got it. It's like, well, we don't know, we haven't developed the film yet. We haven't projected it. We don't exactly know, but he does his job well and we trust him. Well, now it's like, no, we want to see it. We want to see it on set. We want to know that what's passing through the camera is going to look nice and it's going to fit with the rest of our show, or we need to throw up a light here or change the color of someone's costume there or whatever the thing is. So in one sense, it's in one sense, it's something technical that says we don't have to make changes on set in order to, to make this shot work. On the other hand, it might be... Um, you know, like we recently were working on a, on a show about zombies and so a lot of times in the CDL, even though it's a bright, gorgeous, sunny day and there's green grass and trees all over the place, they want to feel like it's zombie world and they want to look at the monitor and know that they can get there. So in the CDL, they're pulling out the saturation, they're pulling things down into this dry, gray, kind of bluish looking zombie world because seeing that tells them, okay, whatever we're recording, we know we can get there in post-production. And again, harping on the order of operations. CDL is applied to the raw before camera. So, we're seeing that. Raw, scaling, CDL, camera. And this, I point out, is just leaving the shoot. Uh, depending on what's going on in the CDL, if that data gets lost, for us in visual effects, who aren't necessarily used to or, or able to like easily, you know, we don't exactly have like, a full-color setup with a full-color calibrated thing with a full-time colorist who's gonna go back and recreate you know, the CDLs for 50 shots because we're working on a sequence. You know, if this data is lost, then you know there's, there's a little bit of extra work to do there. But if we do have these elements, then we can be reasonably sure that we're gonna get into a linear space and we're gonna be able to do visual effects work and we're gonna be able to invert our way back out. So this guy, this is like my, I woke up in the middle of the night two months ago and realized, and it's like really helped, um, is that even though I say here, okay, well, we have raw camera data coming in, it may or may not be being scaled, it may or may not have a CDL, and then we're definitely linearizing it in some way. Well, a thing that I've found that's happening very commonly is that they skip the scaling step and combine it with the CDL. So the CDL actually mathematically has the power, has the ability to represent scaling inside of it. And sometimes it doesn't match what the camera is actually recording. So the camera might be recording, uh, the camera might be recording legal and the CDL is expecting extended. But it might be that the camera's recording legal and the CDL is expecting legal, or vice versa, or any combination between the two. So just, again, I'm just pointing out as you're trying to debug color things, these are these are things to think about during your debugging process is do I need to actually do, do I need to do scaling, or is the CDL already doing scaling? Right? This once we figured this out, this saves so much time and has made things much more much more conformed. Okay. I think this is helpful to quantify because once again, coming from the ideal world where everything is limitless. Let's just take some limits and think about what limitless means, you know. If we wanted to work in floating-point space, in HD, uncompressed, it's 23 megabytes a second, and that's just plain old HD. And now they're coming out with 4K, 5K, 8K... Frame. Hmm? It second per frame. Oh, I'm sorry, per frame. Right. Yes, sorry. 23.7 megabytes per frame, and now we're moving into 4K and 8K and stereo and high frame rates, so it's like... That number all of a sudden is multiplied by two, three, four, five, a hundred, a thousand. So it just becomes very, very unmanageable. So we wanna we don't wanna completely eliminate the concept of being a little bit frugal with our disk space. I to me this seems so intuitive, but having shown it to people, uh, I realize that it, it should just be pointed out. And if you guys have heard this before or seen it before awesome, but I think it's worth stepping through. Um, I'm a super nerd. I've programmed video games before. This seems like an academic thing, but actually there are a lot of cases where 3-bit and 2-bit images are created in video games. Like Just for example, this is not entirely academic. And here, smaller bit depths are a form of compression, but we're losing color information. So we want to find that limit where Enough data is there to be useful, but not so much data that we're just being wasteful. So I think this is an interesting thing. You know, 1023 is a magic number because it's what, 2 to the 10th minus 1. 255 is a magic number because it's 2 to the 8th power minus 1. And a lot of times, you know, when you're trying to debug things and do forensics, when you see magic numbers like a power of two minus one, you know, oh, okay, this is the size of the thing. This is, if I need to scale something by a percentage, I know that this is the this is the maximum amount. So you, you have that little bit of information at least to work with. And you'll also see, I don't know if you guys have seen it before, but the 16-bit half float, which was invented by ILM, I believe, about 10 years ago, um, and it's kind of a an innovative thing in that you can use a, a half-sized float and achieve quite a bit of resolution. Um, so you save twice, you save, well, half the disk space, but achieve the concept of a floating point value. Sorry, one other thing to point out is that this may not be obvious, but integer values between 0 and 255, it means I can't hold a number below 0, and I can't hold a number above 255. A floating-point value is different, where I can have any number between negative a million and positive a million, uh, greater than one, less than one, that doesn't matter. We have signs meaning plus or minus, but we're instead taking this whole vast potential space and slicing that pie up into a whole bunch of tiny little pieces. And the, the size of the smallest piece changes between, obviously, 16-bit and 32-bit. So there's, it's still limited but the values are not limited the way that integer values are. So because it's on disk and it's recorded maybe between 0 and 255, uh, just by convention, we would map 0 to 255 to 0 to 1, because that way it's homogenized and everything downstream. Hopefully this is pretty obvious, but and you guys can you know, obviously ask questions or stop me if I'm not making sense. But. So this is just a little further explanation. Why is it called a floating point value? That seems like always kind of a weird word to use. And it's because of this. Like, this is what's actually being held. It gets a little mathy in there to explain exactly what's going on. But the effect of it is this, that we have some number of digits that can be held. And then some part of this holds where the decimal place is. So it floats around. The decimal place can be moved easily and still keep the same precision. But once you exceed the precision by adding too many de- decimal places, that pi doesn't slice small enough to hold that value. So that's where the name floating point comes from, and that's the effect that it has, which I think, you know, really, from an engineering standpoint, is a really brilliant way to handle floating point value, you know, the concept of a non-integral value.